Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with David Atru, CEO of Nisos, a managed intelligence platform that's raised $33 million in funding. David, thanks for chatting with me today. Excited to be here. Thanks. To kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Absolutely. So again, I'm David Atru. I'm the CEO of Nisos, the managed intelligence company. On a personal note, you know, my wife and I have two boys, and we make a great team as a family. I love to barbecue, though um, time with your smoker and startup CEO are not necessarily the most compatible things. I'm also a fellow at the National Security Institute, where I get to work on national security policy issues. On the professional side, I've had the opportunity to lead a number of great teams and businesses in cybersecurity. Prior to NISOS, I led Blue Voyant's managed security services business. I also led Rapid Seven's managed services business and built the OEM and service provider business at SafeBed and then Gibalto's identity and data protection business as we were acquired in. And earlier in my career, I was a technical practitioner that actually you know worked in on information security. Uh, so I've had the opportunity to sit at most seats around the leadership table from marketing to product to sales to operations, which I think gives me a lot of perspective and, and empathy as a CEO. Do you have one food item that you're famous for cooking on the grill? Yeah. I mean, if you ask my family, it would be ribs. That if you ask guests at parties, I really enjoy burnt ends, but I think one of the most interesting things I've found is doing uh, hot dog burnt ends that they... Uh, if you do at the right temperature, the hot dogs actually puff up and absorb the protein kind of barbecue sauce, and they are uh, something pretty splendid for something as basic as a hot dog. <laughs> You'll have to share the recipe for us so that we can add it to the, the show notes here. Another question we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. What founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? This is a hard question, but you know, I think I chose George Kurtz, uh, the CEO and founder of CrowdStrike. You know, I think he's founded some great companies. Uh, see, CrowdStrike, I think many people know, you know, Foundstone was one of his early companies. And you know, it's not that old minor just because he's built great companies. I think when you look at, you know, Foundstone as an example, it wasn't just a great company, but it it really transformed the careers of the employees. And I think when you look back in the, you know, we now call the cybersecurity industry, a small number of early companies, you know, Foundstone, at stake, Internet Security Systems, you know, who I got to do a lot of work with as a as a customer created many of the people that are the founders and leaders of cybersecurity today. And so you know, when I look at George, I think if you look at sports, you know, there's this analogy, there's a coaching tree, which shows you take a head coach and you look at the careers that their assistant coaches have had after working for them as head coaches. And I think George's coaching tree is probably the best that's out there in cybersecurity. You know, while he's created billions of dollars of value for his companies, he's created and transformed careers. And so I've learned from watching him that, you know, hiring great people and creating a culture and environment where they can succeed and do great things for the company and their careers really creates transformation opportunity for everyone. I think that I will always admire, uh, you know, what he and, and others, uh, some of those companies have created. What about books? And the way we like to frame this, it, it comes from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? Yeah, I see, I'm going to give you two because the one that is probably the most meaningful book for me is one I actually wouldn't recommend that people read, but there's a story behind it. Uh, so I'll save that one for the second one. But the, uh, I think you know, the book that I'd 
you know, rec- actually recommend meeting is Crossing the Chasm. It's sort of hard to believe for me that the book is coming up on 30 years old. But when you talk about, you know, entrepreneurships and startups and product launches, the short summary of the book is that, you know, the approaches from product organization, you know, things across the company that get you going and when your earliest customers, you know, aren't the ones that get you to scale in the broader market. And I find myself rereading it every few years at a number of different stages of the company. So I think that's one of you haven't picked up, I would highly recommend also tee up, you know, a lesson uh, book. Uh, so the context is, so I'm, I'm leading computer security globally for General Electric and um, we want a red teaming exercise, you know, where you simulate being the adversary and, you know, attack the, the systems, the network. And, you know, we ran one of these and we compromised some critical systems, which often happens in some of these exercises. And, you know, went into a meeting with a bunch of very senior executives. And I made some statements about how much money we could have stolen with access to those systems. And, uh, Someone from the finance team cut me off and said, you know, lesson learned that they should look into improving the security of their systems to learn from a simulation. They said, you know, we wouldn't have lost a penny because any money that had been transferred, they either could have blocked the transfer or could have gotten reversed. And, you know, I left the meeting, you know, with my sort of tail between my legs and I asked someone for advice and they handed me a book and the book is called After the Trade is Made, Processing Securities Transactions. And it's a guide to pretty much how every financial transaction in the US is reconciled. It's probably one of the most boring books I've ever read, but it's a book I'll never forget because first of all, tactically it enabled me to figure out how we could have actually transferred money that they couldn't have stopped or recovered. But that was the important point is I think the lessons it taught me was, you know, understand the business, not just technology. Don't make claims I wasn't ready to substantiate and to be prepared. And so I keep both of these books on the top of my bookshelf right here behind me because I think they're both really important lessons. Normally, when a guest shares a book, I add it to the Amazon cart immediately after. For the second one, I think it's the first time I'm not going to do that, but I can definitely see the relevance there. On the first one, you know, Crossing the Chasm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that book. And I remember years ago when someone you know, told me to read it. So I bought it on Amazon and I got it and I picked it up. I'm like, what are you talking about? This book looks like it's from like the 80s. Like, why am I going to read this book about technology? And yeah, you know, I, I read it and was just mind blown how relevant it still is. And I think you touched on that too. It's, you know, three decades old, yet somehow they've just nailed technology adoption, which I find just fascinating. Let's switch gears now. And let's dive a little bit deeper into the company. So at a high level, what problem do you solve? Wait, so at Niso, so we're the managed intelligence company. And what does that mean for what problems we solve is we provide intelligence assessments which are a snapshot or a report of an organization's individual risk or threats, monitoring, which is you know, basically tailored monitoring across surface, deep, dark web, and beyond for specific risks related to the, the organization, and investigations, which are deep dive investigations into threats to uncover who is behind them, how they're being perpetrated, and work with security teams to mitigate or shut down the threat. So our clients are typically cybersecurity, corporate security, or you know, trust and safety teams who we enable to better respond to cyber attacks, disinformation, and the abuse of digital platforms. And talk to me about the founding story behind the company. So, you know, I think, you know, pretty exciting history to the company. So, you know, the founders were two operators in the U.S. intelligence community. And, you know, they saw that nation state actors were, you know, not just targeting governments, but targeting private sector organizations. And, you know, really mission focused said, hey, we're going to do something about that. And, you know, I think what's important is that they founded NISOs on that mission but importantly, then also, you know, hired amazing talent and from day one had the North Star of ensuring that our clients are successful in managing risks and remediating incidents. And so a few years in, they realized that they were doing a lot of work around, you know, intelligence problem sets and that it was having a big impact for, you know, our clients. And they, you know, looked, stepped back and said, hey, I think we have a, you know, instead of you know, being a consulting company as they were, they were founded to really look at 
how we can invest in the tradecraft, our intelligence tradecraft, and importantly, technology enablement to transform how intelligence was delivered. So that spawned the creation of, of managed intelligence, and which has enabled you know, intelligence teams from our customers from early in their maturity to the most mature to be able to consume fierce intelligence uh, from Mesos. And then you joined, it looks like in June, 2020, what was it about you know, what the company was doing that made you say, yep, that's it. That's the type of company that I want to be part of. That's the type of company that I want to lead. I think so a couple of different things. So first, you know, from a market opportunity perspective that, you know, I think there's a transformational kind of market opportunity for what we do that if you think about most mature tech markets that when something hits a billion dollars in software or SaaS revenue, there tends to be at least a 15% sophisticated services business connected to it. And in cybersecurity, that number actually tends to be even higher that, you know, for every dollar that goes into detection response, you know, and he is counting 25 to 35 cents goes into you know, Magitech's response. And we look at the intelligence market, there's a $6 billion market. And, you know, for every dollar spent less than a penny is going into managed services that has all the people process technology problems. And so having, you know, built, uh, having been very early, you know, building one of the uh, Rapid Seven's managed texture response business, seeing the impact that could have on customers, being able to to look at how we could transform intelligence just you know, seems seemed a, a phenomenal market opportunity. And then when it came to the company itself, you know, the things I mentioned in the mission North Star of the company, the view that, you know, we're not successful if our clients aren't successful. And the talent in the organization, you know, those things were uh, I think those are are critical components to you know, a recipe of success. And so when I, you know, between the market opportunity and then meeting the team and, and understanding the the capabilities and and the passion for, for what they delivered, that was, uh, yeah, signed me up. When you joined, did it feel like there was already product market fit or did it still take some time for you to really reach that and start to feel confident in the product? So as you I think from a use case and problem perspective, we had product market fit in a number of areas from a Pricing and packaging, we had a, um, I think we're pretty early in our journey. And so we had been fortunate to work with some incredibly sophisticated customers early in our life cycle. And I think, you know, having come from a consulting company background, we were still doing a lot of things that were time materials, hourly rate type work. And, you know, that work isn't, you know, from my perspective, you know, isn't good for anyone because the company wants to maximize the hourly rate, the consumer wants to minimize it, but it doesn't really drive any goals of efficiency is that, you know, if you, you talk about value-based pricing, what you want to be able to do is, is set a price that's your customer feels good, that is relevant for solving their problem, but then you control, you know, how you deliver that in a way that allows you to maximize the returns on your business. And, you know, hourly pricing, I think is far away from doing that. So I think we've been on a, a great transformation over the past, you know, three and a half years to, to move to, you know, subscription pricing to, you know, more clear, understandable upfront pricing. I think what we've learned with that too, is not only does it create the right incentives, it actually accelerates business because if someone calls you and said, Hey, can you solve this problem? And you're like, yes, maybe let me go figure out how much that costs. You know, let me ask you 10 more questions. Let's back and forth. Whereas you're like, yes, we can solve that problem. Then, you know, here's our offering and here's what it costs. You know, you're able to be more responsive to your customers. And, you know, importantly, I'm saying a startup, be able to you know, shorten sales cycles, which are important to drive the success that we need. And what's the competitive landscape look like today? So, you know, our competitive landscape today is, is interesting is that part of pioneering a new market is dealing with what I you know, consider non-traditional competition. So we're the first scalable managed service for threat intelligence. Uh, you know, there's other service providers that do it in a, in a bespoke way. You know, what that means is the primary competition we deal with is someone buying, you know, a seat to a intelligence SaaS portal or a data feed and then 
you know, trying to turn that into intelligence themselves. You know, if we were on video, you would see the air quotes intelligence, because I think what's fascinating about this $6 billion cyber threat intelligence market is that it actually doesn't sell intelligence, you know, it sells data or information. So, you know, data is, you know, the collection of raw facts, information is data that's logically arranged and intelligence is information that's curated to enable a timely, actionable, and relevant decision. And so what we compete against is people buying data information that they then have to, you know, curate themselves to create intelligence. Some of the consulting firms have offerings that are uh, similar. We've seen some great copycats that a number of our our competitors that provide those SaaS portals or data feeds uh, have put up managed intelligence pages on their websites, you know, that they typically support professional services. They they haven't achieved the the scale and and quality that we have. Um, So I think that's probably a quick view of the competitive landscape. Is managed intelligence then, is that the market category or is the market category threat intelligence? Like, how do you think about the market category that you fall within? I think I would say we're creating a a subcategory, you know, that gives you think about taking examples like in the cybersecurity space, we have good parallels to detection response markets. You have the endpoint detection response or XDR, extended detection response market, and then you have a managed detection response market. And some people consider those to be, you know, one aggregate uh, market with subcategories, other consider them two different markets. But I think that analogy fits very well that, you know, we're pioneering scalable delivery of finished intelligence. So whether I tend to think of it as a subcategory of the $6 billion Fed intelligence market, but we can debate it either way. But I think the key difference for us is, you know, what our market is delivering you know, finished intelligence for our clients that is, you know, immediately useful, you know, that has brought uh, custom analysis to the risks that they're dealing with. So instead of getting data that they have to bring to life themselves, you know, we provide the people process and technology that that delivers finished intelligence that they can action. And can you share any numbers about the growth and adoption that the platform is seeing today? Yeah, so I think you know, the metrics we focus on are beyond the normal things that I think everyone would is, you know, is subscription revenue growth, you know, client retention, so specifically net dollar retention, and then, you know, new client wins. And yeah, I think the place that's comfortable sharing uh, more numbers is we've taken the business from, you know, as a, took the transition went through what was, you know, nearly zero to 20% subscription revenue business to north of 90% in subscription revenue, uh, which has just been great for both obviously the particularity of our business, but importantly, our clients' understanding and predictability of how they engage with us. I think the other metric that we really care about is net negative churn. So, you know, NDR retention that, uh, you know, we've, the threat intelligence space has historically had a churn problem. And it's not because people don't have great data that there's, you know, I mean, I, I was a consumer of this stuff years ago that there's a lot of great data out there, but even if you've, you've built the best data feed for something, if you're, if your customer can't bring it to life, that creates a, you know, a value challenge and a renewal challenge for you. And so, you know, I think we've having uh, you know, north of hundred uh, percent net dollar retention, we were north of 108% last year. So being able to really illustrate that we retain our clients and we grow with them is really critical. And uh, I think a great illustration of the value we provide for our clients. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. 
As I'm sure you experience every day, there's a lot of noise in cybersecurity. I've been to Black Hat a few times and RSA a few times. And whenever I walk the halls there, I just think, wow, everyone's kind of saying the same thing in like a slightly different way. And there's just, you know, hundreds and thousands of vendors that exist today. So what are you doing to really rise above all that noise and you obtain that type of growth that you just shared? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great question because you know, I think it's one of the interesting chats. I've made a comment that it would be easier to build the managed intelligence market if the threat intelligence market was 1 billion, not 6 billion, because you know, I think nearly all of what's provided in the threat intelligence space is data or information. So it's it's not that actionable intelligence that you know, I think the bar for, for a user is, is, is what I'm getting immediately useful. But you know, the market's not providing that. But the challenge is, is that there's almost $6 billion that is educating the prospects that what they're selling is adequate. So you, know, you talk about the noise in the market now, is there a lot of vendors that there's a market that you know, we believe is, is selling what's short of what the customer needs. And they're doing that at a lot of scale with a lot of marketing dollars. So rising above that noise is challenging and important. So we have three connected strategies that we think about of you know, how we rise above that. So educating about finished intelligence, uh, highlighting the analysts, and then our research. So one of these issues we've learned is that prospects that come from the intelligence community or law enforcement are likely to actually know what finished intelligence is and have experienced in that in their careers. But that's a small percentage of the buyer population, particularly in cybersecurity. So, you know, with finished intelligence, we have to, you know, help them understand that actual intelligence is based on, you know, their organizational specific needs that's immediately useful versus just having good data that they have to bring their lives themselves. And we show that in real life examples, and I'll talk to you in the next two. Um, we're also going to be doing some some creative and fun things uh, with this and some marketing campaigns, uh, you know, coming out shortly. The next we talk about is the value of the analyst. Uh, that you know, too often in the security industry, we rave solely about technology, and you know, technology matters, and the technology platform at Nisos matters in enabling our analyst. But if you step back, the real heroes that are out there are the other security team members that are battling threats and managing risk every day. And I think in a lot of messaging, you know, those folks get lost in the noise. It's a speeds and feeds conversation, not about the impact that offerings have on people. And so our products are combinations of people, process, and technology. But in our case, you know, it's our people who are a superpower and it's our people who enable our clients to be heroes. And so that's what differentiates us from the competition. And if you think of like furniture makers, you could give me a bunch of woodworking tools. And if I tried to make a, a piece of furniture, it'd be, it'd probably be functional, but it wouldn't be great. We know we have folks who can bring the tradecraft and expertise and experience to life to produce fish intelligence. So highlighting that. And importantly, you know, we're not the heroes, our clients are the heroes, how we make them successful in mitigating you know, or addressing their, their organization's risk is key. And then the last part is, you know, how do you make this real? So we publish a lot of research, I think particularly for a company our size. So we cover topics, you know, from, you know, like disinformation that impacting elections to ransomware to fraud. And some of this is impact is really useful in driving, you know, media coverage and, and, you know, so we've been really fortunate to be uh, covered in some great publications, uh, like Time Magazine, Reuters, number of areas have, that shows our, our expertise, but it also gives them something tangible to see that the difference between, hey, wait, from there, I get a feed of, of raw data. And here is an example of, of what a fish intelligence report that's relevant to my industry, you know, like, like we, we, we done somewhat fraud that uh, fraud barry was go wow like i could bring this to life in my organization today as i mentioned there in the intro uh, you've raised 33 million to date what have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey 
Yeah, I've been fortunate. I've, I've been a GM of a number of businesses. This is my first, you know, CEO role. Uh, but in, in, in a number of executive and, and GM roles, I've had the opportunity to be involved in, in critical parts of fundraising process. And so I think the lesson that I would hit home is have the right investors, not just the right amount of capital. There's a lot of advice out there on what the right amount of capital is, but I found way less on how you evaluate the right partner. So what are some attributes of what does the right investor look like? And again, you don't have to, you know, if you have someone who answers all of these topics the exact same way, like figure that out, you don't have to have perfect alignment, but I think directionality is important. So what is the vision for the business? You know, is this a platform or a feature? How big is the total and serviceable addressable market? So, you know, what are you building toward? You know, some, there's a lot of cybersecurity solutions, for example, that end up as a feature of a larger platform pretty early in their cycle. You know, if that's your intent, great. If it's not, that could be a pretty disappointing outcome for the broader vision that you have. You know, next, what is the kind of related, what is the time horizon of the business? You know, you're typically raising capital for an 18 to 24 month window. So what are you going to accomplish during that time? And how does that connect to that vision that we talked about in the, just before this, you know, next, what is risk tolerance? So, you know, what is the balance of forward investment in the business with current performance that, you know, we've seen with the economic changes over the past 12 months that, you know, tolerance for burn has changed a lot in some investors' eyes. And uh, so how much are you investing in forward investments um, to unlock the opportunity you have versus, you know, what is seen as responsible and appropriate? And then, you know, along with that, what happens if things don't, don't go as planned? because they won't. Sometimes they don't go as planned better. Sometimes they don't go as planned worse, but very rarely did things operate in, in, to the actual plan. And then I think the last one that's really important is, you know, what is the role of the board? And I was chatting with a, a leader of a company last week, and he was telling me that, you know, his board members expect a weekly sales forecast sync. And this is a company that was performing fine. It wasn't like they're, you know, running out of money or missing out numbers or having problems which that's pretty granular. On the opposite side, I've seen companies where the board was so removed from the business, I'm not sure how they could do their role. So there's a lot in between. And, and you know what makes sense for the company and, and the members of the board, because that's a group you need to work well and work well together and have the right expectations. So I think those are advice I'd say, and as you dive into the process, how do you think about who your right partner is? And based on everything you've learned so far, if you were starting this company again today from scratch, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? Focus, hands down focus. Um, and you know, I think Nisos' journey is really interesting because, you know, it's early days to start as a consulting firm. And the benefit of that was that, you know, all the work we did had a sophisticated client paying us to solve their problem. And we were fortunate to win a number of them. So, you, you know, you talk about elements of product market fit, you know, is someone paying you to do something and, and you know, renewing or continuing you doing that? Yeah, I think that's great evidence. While all the work we do, after I joined, we made some difficult decisions that there were some offerings that we have that didn't fit in our mission intelligence vision. And so we stopped doing those. And that was, uh, you know, turning off revenue as an early stage startup is a uh, fascinating endeavor <laughs> to go through. Uh, it was also definitely, you know, the right decision. But I think, you know, looking looking back, you know, we still ended up supporting, even within managed intelligence, you know, a number of different buying centers and use cases early in our journey, then, you know, had we found it with that in mind that I think we would have said, hey, you know, we're going to focus on trust and safety problems for tech platforms. We're going to focus on protective intelligence problems and insider threat for corporate security teams that, uh, you know, given the opportunity to pick one thing early on and do it would have been great. But, I'll, you know, it was also nice to have the uh, the benefit of the of knowing everything we did and already, someone already paid us for is a, is a great market validation. <laughs> And we're getting into the final couple of questions here. Last one, or last of the two, uh, what excites you most about the work you get to do every day? The mission and the team. 
you know, so at Nisos, you know, we have written down, you know, our purpose is to protect organizations and people from adversaries seeking to harm them, that we get to help protect people. And there's a mission that comes of that, that is infectious. That So I think that's a piece of it. So, you know, we're not only pioneering a new space and building a great company, we get to do a lot of good while we're doing it. The part that is interesting is had you asked me 10 years ago, I would have actually laughed at you if I, if I said these things, but it's 100% true is that the thing I love about entrepreneurship is actually the team and the impact you could have on people's careers. I think, you know, 10 years ago, you said, hey, David, look in the future, you'll be running a managed services firm. And I probably would have laughed at you and said, oh my God, people. And like the variable cost of software is zero. And like, you know, why would we do that? And I think I've learned that, you know, one is that when you bring people process and technology, you can solve problems that in ways that people, clients couldn't solve on their own. But on the team side, that seeing the growth in the team, both the team you know, and as individuals is really heartwarming. And, and we can create opportunities for people that would take them you know, years or careers to have in a, in a large organization um, that you know, we get the opportunity to, to create opportunity and invest on bed in people and help them grow. And that gets me out of bed in the morning. That is one of the most fulfilling things about my job. Final question. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision for what you're building here? So we're really excited to go prove that, you know, that we can scale. We're in eight figures of revenue. So we're we're well past the uh, couple of folks in a garage stage. But, you know, we've got we've got a long way to go to be that hundred million, you know, plus company that in ARR that we we know we can be. And so we have a lot of great plans on both how we scale on the market and also how we scale our service delivery to to make that happen. You know, looking that far ahead, you know, today we're primarily US focused in our in our go to market initiatives. We have some international customers, but you know, those have come you know, through referrals or, or partners typically. So, you know, I think we see significant international growth opportunities. You know, we'll likely start with the five ice countries, you know, US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, where I think English speaking, many cultural similarities, you know, Europe from there, and then, you know, continuing. So we see that one we're working on right now, which I think will be a big, you know, that's happening live in 2023, but will will continue to be a big part of our business is partnerships that, um, you know, historically we've been, you know, primarily a direct sales, kind of direct enterprise sales company. And what we found is that there are a number of people that provide again, data information that we talked about them as competition, but I think when you really step back and look at it, you know, what they ultimately want beyond someone paying to use their, uh, their platform or data feed is for that to have a, you know, massive impact on their clients success. And so we're aligned there. And I think what we're seeing is we recently launched a a threat intelligence as a service partnership with Cyber Six Skill, uh, as we, you know, when, when we partner up and they provide access to their platform and we provide the the managed service to connect it, that, you know, we can really make transformational impact on our mutual clients. And so, you know, I think partnerships is a, a piece where you see a lot of opportunity to, to grow the company. And then we see a ton of opportunity to expand additional finished intelligence use cases. Some of those organically, and I think some of those can be via acquisition. So, you know, as we talk about the investment partners, as we you know, we look ahead. I think that's you know, ensuring a partner who can help us look at how we turn this into you know a, a really a platform services company of yeah, that we can um, that we can go address these opportunities together is is really exciting and you know one of my challenges uh, to to go continue to make happen. Amazing. I love the vision. I, I love everything that you're building. And I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. If there's any founders or leaders that are listening in and they just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute, where should they go? So for me personally, I think uh, you know, 
follow me on on LinkedIn for the company. We do a lot on LinkedIn and uh, I guess X, formerly Twitter, but you can follow us on the socials. And we also, you know, for finding the company, they follow our blog and our research uh, that we do a lot of, you know, we share a lot of, uh, that obviously all get shared in social media too. But if you want to, if you're really passionate, want to dive into any of these kind of problem sets that I think the research that we publish is some of my favorite stuff and really impactful. Amazing. David, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 